airing the Addisons. Let me say this, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to be careful and make sure that in everything, man, we are trying to get as close to what the word says as possible. And we got to understand that with that type of wickedness, man, you know, God does not wink at that. That's judgment. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. And you don't have shades of truth. You have truth or you have error. You have fact or you have fiction. And now we go into the thick of it. Uh oh. Uh oh. Erin Addison's. On American Family Radio, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. I'm Miki. And I'm Will. And Sherry B is over in Studio CC. I'm not sure that we're going to get around to calls today. We do have a guest who's going to join us in the second and third segment, and we just have a lot to unpack. We have a lot to talk about. Katie Faust is the founder and director of the Children's Rights Organization, Them Before Us, Them Before Us. And I heard... um, an interview with Katie Faust. I, and I, I think it was Katie. I didn't actually go back to check it, uh, but it was one of those things where I was listening to a podcast mm-hmm. and um, you know, I didn't really get all of the information in the beginning. We've all been here where you just kind of start listening and, yeah. and then, you know, there's something that really grabs your attention. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm pretty sure it was Katie Faust when you read her work and she's got a new book that's out. We'll talk about that. Okay. Um, she's pretty consistent. And what she says um, about the rights of children. And anyway, I, I want to say that this was maybe two years ago that I heard her in an interview uh, listening via podcast, and she said something that I had never in my life explored. And I raised this question, even as I alluded to us um, having this interview with her or conducting this interview with her looking ahead to this week. Um, but she asked the question, do children have a right to parents or do adults have a right to children? Like mm-hmm. do parents, maybe not parents, she's going to word it better than I can, <laughs> right? Because this is what she does. But um, I remember listening and, and just mm. to, to lay all the cards face up, yeah. I was listening in the context of, I think the conversation was about um, some reproductive measures that are taken in mm-hmm. this country and the way um, adults who have a desire for kids mm-hmm. are willing to do very selfish things. And we had a great Be- discussion about that too. In our own family. Yes. <laughs> yes, we did. It's pretty interesting. Oh, it was very, very interesting. Um, we actually learned some information and, and I don't know, we'll have to have Katie back because that is an entire discussion in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. It's an entire discussion. We, I mean, so, so, but to your point, to your point, the intensity of the discussion forces you <laughs> mm-hmm. to navigate the types of decisions that get made um, based on the perceived right of adults yeah. to have access to children. Well, yeah. And, and that actually is sort of what drives, I would say, our conversations today that it is believed. And I don't know how we got here. Maybe Katie can offer us some insight, but it is really believed that adults have a right to children. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about Bethany uh, Christian Services and what kind of sparked the question, you know, do parents or do adults have a right to children or do children have a right to adults? And for some people, it may just sound like semantics, um, but truly there is a distinction there Yeah. that I think once we understand, we're going to approach things differently. Um, one of the things that we're going to point out is the fact that the Barna Group, and, and this plays into, I think, Bethany's decision 
to extend adoption services to quote unquote gay families or gay couples. Um, I, I think their information that they got from the Barna group, which suggests that uh, 55% of Christians expressed some level of support <laughs> for same sex adoptions. Mm. Now, Dr. Michael Brown, actually, and I'll bring this up again, but I want to lay a foundation. So mm -hmm. as we are listening, we are listening as Christians, presumably we're, we're listening as Christians. Well, that's who we're targeting. That's who we're talking to yeah. <laughs> unapologetically. Well, that's okay? who we're talking to. So. Um, right. So <laughs> I'll just, you know, just presume. Um, but Dr. Michael Brown in his article discussing the whole Bethany uh, Christian services thing points out that seven in 10 Americans consider themselves Christian. Seven, seven and ten. And ten. That, is, that is a very high number. Okay. Very high. So seven and ten um, Americans consider themselves Christians. However, however, only 6% actually have a biblical worldview. Now, yeah. I want to lay just a little, bit of, a little bit of groundwork before we get into our discussion with Katie Faust because I think it is so important. I don't think we can stress it enough. Mm -hmm. There is a way to to define, uh, for lack of a better word, but, or to discuss a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I think, and you correct me if, if I go off the rails here and then please provide insight as well. Mm -hmm. I think that many Christians believe that a biblical worldview is one that supports the truth of the Bible. Yes. I believe the Bible is true. Mm hmm I believe the Bible is good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I read the Bible. Yeah. Um, the Bible has great things to say about loving our neighbors. And, and the, the Bible has some really good moral principles that we can glean. Like there, we don't necessarily say these things because we're not often pressed to define a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. We just kind of say it. It's, it's, it becomes one of those kind of like popular terms that, you know, or popular expressions. I have a biblical worldview, a yeah. biblical worldview, yeah. you know, and, and so everybody just starts saying it. Right. And it's one of those things mm -hmm. that we all think we mean the same thing. Right. But I think that if we drill down on this or if we flip a few pages, mm -hmm. you know, beyond what a person initially says, what we will find is that many people who profess to be Christians, one, are not. Yeah. Many people who profess to be Christians are not. Two, among those who profess to be Christian and even profess to have a biblical worldview, simply have an affinity for the Bible. They mm. just like it. Mm. They just think it's cool. Like they, 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 it's comforting to them. So it's like a good book that they just can continually go to and, and say, oh, I read this book like three times yeah. and oh, it just, you know, it's, it just does something to me every time I read it. And, and you know, when I think of a biblical worldview, I'm thinking beyond, you know, even knowledge of the scriptures or knowledge of the Bible. Uh -huh. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of how it's practically lived day That's right. after day after yep. day. Yep. You know, so it's not just, yeah, applications. It's not, it, application is not just, you know, I, can go to the Bible when I need this or, you know, it's the living out mm -hmm. of what the Bible says that would say that I have a biblical worldview. It's, that's that's, that's right. the proof. That's right. And I think that is also the stumbling block. Mm. Will the great. Mm. I think that is also the stumbling block. I, I think it's much easier to like the Bible. Mm -hmm. I think it's much, much easier to have an affinity for the Bible to discuss your reading plan. Mm -hmm. I'm reading through the Bible and, you know, 
300 days. I, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever. Like it's, it's much easier. It's, it, it is even a little bit in vogue to post beautifully set up pictures of like your Bible and your coffee mug and, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. here's what I'm reading and your yeah. beautifully highlighted and, and, and circled things, you know, you know, all the right. things that our culture has normalized because right. it's just how it's changed so much that it's not your, um, it's not your private devotional time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's your private public devotional time, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or your public private devotional time, however you want to say it. I think all of those things are easy, but what is not easy, and in my opinion, this is where the rubber meets the road, mm-hmm. is when you look, when you read and study the Bible, and then you determine by the grace of God, you determine that you are going to live and conduct your life according to its right application, the Amen. Bible's right application, Amen. which means there is wrong application. True. And by the way, it the Bible has been misread, and we have people in church history who have done some things that they later <laughs> would um, would regret yeah. because they didn't understand what they initially read and thought, "Oh, I should do this," mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. mm, so so that is important. I've <laughs> carefully crafted that understanding, right? According to the Bible's right application. If as many people as profess to be Christians in this country lived according to a biblical worldview, it would not even come close to looking the way it looks today. I agree. Not, not even close. And, and because there are far too many Christians, you know, so, so called self-professed, there are Mm -hmm. far too many Christians for us to be in the type of dire straits that we are in, um, morally speaking. Yes. Morally speaking. And in fact, let me let me also say that I think if we had um, a greater biblical worldview, mm-hmm. um, as expressed in the number of people who profess to be Christians, then the numbers that came from the Barna group, mm-hmm. that, that number couldn't even come close to over half Yeah, yeah. saying, Oh yeah, it's okay for a kid to be in a situation where they don't know God's design for thus. Family. We have the 6% <laughs> yeah. that don't have a biblical worldview. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think the responsibility that so many of us as Christians who do have a biblical worldview, I think the responsibility is for intense discipleship. That we have to sit down with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we have to say, okay, so what does it mean that you are a follower of Christ? What does it look like to apply the Bible in your everyday living? What does it mean to have a biblical lens? Well, it means that we are not taking, um, we're not taking polls to decide how we live in the culture. Yeah, the culture does not sway no. Uh, you know, what you believe when you have a biblical worldview. That's right. Because everything is based on a concrete, solid foundation of the scripture. And here's what I keep going back to. And, and I hope that every Christian, as we navigate culture, whatever culture that you exist in, I just can't I can't help but go back to the fact that the <laughs> gospel has to work all around the world. Yeah, it worked for uh, <laughs> the Cre- Cretans. Yes. It worked for the Colossians. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the Romans. exactly. Yes, that's it's, right. It, Ephesians, the same the word. Yes. You know, it's going to work in America. Or what, yes. You know, it's, yeah. 
So if if we don't see and excuse the expression, if we don't see it working and excuse that expression, okay, because the problem is not with the word of God, it is with the application of the word of God to our mm -hmm. lives, right? So when we don't, so to speak, see it working, um, then we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we believe? Mm. What what is it that we believe? Certainly, what is it that that um, is being reflected in how we live? And that's that's a deeper question. That's that's a question that people are like, I don't really have time for that. You know, because you can't really fit all of that in like, you know, drive by Facebook discipleship. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereby we learn and glean because like somebody posted a scripture or they posted a story <laughs> mm -hmm. with commentary and you're like, ooh, that challenged me. And 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 that becomes a part <laughs> of your Christian growth. It's 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 drive by social media discipleship. That's yeah. not enough. Not it's enough. not enough. Like you have to live in community. This is why the Lord has blessed mm. us with the body of Christ. Amen. You live in community where you're challenging one another. You're reading the word of mm -hmm. God together. Mm -hmm. You're praying together. You're growing together. Yes. And you are being challenged on the right application of what you're reading. Yep. It's like Abe said, live locally. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's true. We have community. We have the body of Christ. And we should be, you know, we should be a part of a local assembly where we're be, where we're being discipled and we're discipling and, and, and having all these, you know, things at play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I, I think that's not as easy though. I think it's, mm -hmm. um, I think it's easier to, if, if, if the charge is to live locally, then I think it's easier to live globally because, you know, mm -hmm. you can have a lot of, um, drive-by views of your social media, mm -hmm. um, platform mm -hmm. and not have people take a, closer look at your personal life does your mm. life line up with what you put out there That's publicly good. so that becomes easier to do yeah. than this local interaction where people are like oh come get out of here yeah get out of here you know because our lives and that's man that's the the brilliance excuse the expression but that is the brilliance of what God has designed in the local assembly, in the body of Christ, that we are living interconnectedly. We are now we are not codependent, but we are interdependent. We are working together with one another for our growth, for our sanctification. Like as we walk with the Lord, mm -hmm. we are challenging one another and even our lives displayed all become a part of that. The way we the way we live together, those things um, challenge us. Yeah. Right. Like you it, it is. It really is brilliant. The setup and the function of the body of Christ. So anyway, as we have our discussion today, I would like to remind our Christian audience that we are to be thinking about these issues and filtering these issues through a biblical lens, not just an affinity for the word of God, but the right application of it to our life and our conduct. Aaron the Addison's American Family Radio will take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Aaron the Addison's on American Family Radio. We are so glad that you've carved out this hour to spend with us as we talk about the issues of the day and filter that through a biblical lens. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's Brad and Rebecca with I Am Found. 
Sherry B has gotten our guest on, and I'm, I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation, so mm-hmm. let's just get right into it. Katie Faust is the founder and director of the children's rights organization Them Before Us and also author of the new book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. She's married, and uh, she's a mother of four children, the youngest of whom is adopted from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, we are going to talk, among other things, we're going to talk about Bethany Christian Services and their decision to um, expand or extend adoption services um, to <laughs> same-sex couples, mm-hmm. gay couples. So we'll talk about that. Um, first, let me say this. Katie, how are you? I'm good. It's really nice to be on with you guys. I I didn't know about you until last week, and then I just binged a bunch of your episodes. Oh, boy. So I'm really great to be on with you guys. <laughs> okay, look. <laughs> well, then we're going to have some fun, Katie, because I, I've heard you do some interviews. And so I one of the things that I appreciate about your style is that it is so clear. And it's one of those things that sometimes when we are, when we are steeped in what we're doing, um, people can kind of get lost. But I don't feel that way when I'm listening to you talk and communicate about the great need to center children in our discussion. So I'm really excited that our audience is going to get to hear that. Um, I want to say this, and then you can tell me what you think, and then we'll get right into, <laughs> into asking some questions and kind of going going around in a few circles, maybe. Um, it is possible that we may disagree but I'm not nervous about that in as much as we have an opportunity to set an example for any snowflake that might happen upon this program <laughs> to learn that disagreement can happen and there's still sanity and it's not, it's not violence. Like you've not <laughs> hurt me in any way. For sure. And, you know, I've told, I actually said this one time at the Heritage Institute when I was doing a panel discussion, I said, give me enough time. I'll piss you off too. I mean, like, in the world of children's rights, in the world of insisting that all adults conform to the rights of children, some adults are going to get angry. Um, Because really, this idea that children have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father makes claims and adds burdens to all of us. All of us at some point in our life is going to have to do hard things so that the rights and needs of the children in our life are protected. And so, look, there might be several places in this conversation where you or I or the audience are uncomfortable. So we'll just kind of like throw that out there right now. That's All good. Right. And, and, and we will, we will agree to navigate this. Um, I, I say navigate this by setting an example. And I, and I think it's good because sometimes um, and speaking as a conservative to conservatives, I think sometimes we get used to kind of only hearing and talking to people who agree with us 100% or at least getting as close to it 99.9% as we can. So we yeah. don't know what it's like to even disagree. And I think that that's something that we've got to rediscover. All right. So Bethany Christian services, um, your most recent article on this and well, let me back up Katie, give our audience sort of a brief description or a brief history of your children's rights organization. Why um, was it founded and what is the great need? I got into the marriage and family battle around the debate about gay marriage, because what I heard the other side saying is kids don't care if they're raised by two moms or two dads. And what they're really saying is kids don't care if they lose a mom or dad, because that's the thing about gay parenting. It's not really about the gay parenting. It's about the missing parents. Right. Kids raised by two moms or two dads will always be missing one adult to whom they have a natural right. And they will always be missing the maternal or paternal love that children crave and benefit from. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband and I had done youth ministry for decades. And I'll tell you what, 
you know, when you're doing those midnight lock-ins and everybody's asleep on the gymnasium floor and there's that one kid <laughs> that wants to stay up and talk, what is, what's the heartache that they talk about? It's why did my parents divorce? It must be because I did something wrong. Or where is my mother? Why did she choose to abandon me? Or why did my dad take off with the secretary? Doesn't he love me? I mean, the deepest pain that kids experience has to do with not being loved the way they deserve to be loved by their parents. And so the whole narrative on the other side that I heard first began with gay marriage is, you know, if, uh, if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy, even if it means they have to lose a relationship with one of their both one or both of their parents to be in mm -hmm. that relationship. So after I got into that battle, I realized that in every conversation about marriage and family, every single one, whether it's divorce, whether it's reproductive technologies, whether yeah. it's the definition of marriage yourself, whether even whether it's about adoption, all of those conversations obsessively focus on what adults want. Mm -hmm. And then we just expect the kids to be happy if the adults are happy. Mm. But that is a lie. We actually have been studying family structure. And now we have countless dozens of stories of kids, too, that tell us we actually know what makes kids happy. We actually have a formula to ensure that they are safe and loved. That formula is the home of their married mother and father whenever possible. Yeah. So what we try to do with them before us, the movement and in the book, is center every marriage and family conversation around a child's fundamental, natural right to be known and loved by their mother and father. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you get great policy outcomes and you get great personal decisions as well. So you're always going to hear me say, but what about the kids? But what about yeah. the kids? Mm -hmm. Because that is mm -hmm. where all these conversations should begin. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because in thinking about this and, and thinking about what we were going to talk about today, I think that in the history of the church, I really appreciate church history, right? So learning how, <clears throat> excuse me, faithful Christians have held the line um, for, for hundreds of years. So one of the things that if you go back to um, Christians sort of leading the charge and adopting children, it was not this sort of... Um, for lack of a better expression, Rodeo Drive type phenomenon where you just kind of go and pick a new handbag. You know, you know, I think I want a kid and and so I'm just going to go get one. It was actually a response to the great need of children. How did we yeah. experience this shift? Oh, my gosh. Well, I first of all, the culture has shifted that way. And then mm -hmm. instead of the church discipling the nations, we're allowing the nations to disciple the church, mm. right? Oh, man. So we've got way too much of the culture influencing us rather than vice versa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I saw, you know, when I kind of looked at the legal changes that took place in terms of marriage and family, it actually began with divorce. Divorce was the first place that we, that was, divorce was the original redefinition of marriage, where we said it doesn't mm. have to be permanent. If the marriage, if you're unhappy in the wow. marriage, then the marriage can cease to exist. Mm -hmm. So that means that whatever makes me very happy should be called a marriage, right? It then just became a vehicle for adult fulfillment. Wow. Marriage used to be the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known because it united a child's mother and father. Mm -hmm. Now we have normalized a version of marriage that says mothers and fathers are totally optional. Okay, so now we've taken that mindset. And we've carried it through every other conversation that we have about marriage and parenthood. And unfortunately, the church has been drinking deeply out of that distorted fountain of, you know, that wow. fountain of ideology. Whereas what scripture says, and I don't, I don't talk a lot about, I don't talk at all about scripture in my book, because it is a book based on natural law, social science, and dozens and dozens of stories of kids 
who have lived through modern families, and so they are the authority on this. But when it comes to talking to the church, we, the adults, uh, where in Scripture does it ever say that the weak should sacrifice for the strong? Never. It's mm-hmm. always the strong sacrificing for the weak. But and that's, that is why it was that principle that led the early Christians to scoop babies out of rivers and grab yes. children that had been, you know, exposed, mm-hmm. exposed, that is yeah. discarded, right, to the elements because they were girls or they were weak or mm-hmm. they were disabled or whatever it was. And so I, I've seen a lot of that actually in the Christian community in terms of rescuing orphaned children, especially disabled children or special needs children. I'm surrounded by Christians that are engaging with, you know, caring for foster kids and seeking after not just the white drug-free infant for whom there are years-long waiting lists, but they're going after the kids, the sibling groups, you know, they're going after Mm -hmm. the ones that have significant disabilities. That is the Christian ethic when -hmm. it comes to caring for unwanted children. So we've got to, you know, embody that for our own children, but then also when God calls us to look outside of our own family, you know, the Christian ideal is to draw the weak into our families and therefore give them a picture of what Christ has done for us. Mm. Mm. Oh, yes. Amen. That's now see, that is the neighborhood that I hang out in. OK, when we talk about the picture, <laughs> the picture that adoption is for us of what the Lord has done by bringing us yeah. into his family through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, that is huge. But I want to double back to something you said and just kind of run a highlighter over it, Katie, because I really think that the approach that we have uh, recently adopted, you know, if you will, has really injured kids because we have taken this approach that, you know, I just, I don't have to need God for reproduction. I can just take matters into my own hands and however you want to describe what you do, it really is. I don't have to need him. And so what it has done is it has put kids who are in need at a greater disadvantage because we no longer see the need for helping them or reaching out to them, it essentially becomes all about us. Yes. So the way that we would put that in them before us language is who's sacrificing? Are you making the kids sacrifice for you or are you sacrificing for the kids? Because generally adults, but especially Christian adults should never make children sacrifice for them. We're the Mm -hmm. adults. We're the ones that have God's spirit inside of us. We are the ones that are commanded to do hard things, to welcome the little ones in his name, right? They don't welcome us in, in their name. They're not, they don't have the welcoming capacity as needy kids. We're the mm-hmm. ones that need to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. What happens when, um, and we, in chapter nine, we actually contrast reproductive technologies and adoption, right? Adoption mm-hmm. is an institution that when you properly understand the function of adoption, it is that the child is the client and adults serve the children. In reproductive technologies, the adults are the client and the children Mm -hmm. sacrifice and serve the adults. Um, So I know that some of that's probably very new for a lot of your listeners, Mm -hmm. but it's very serious, right? Mm -hmm. As an adoptive mom myself, my husband and I were subjected to screenings, background Mm -hmm. checks, references, home studies, training, supervision, post-placement reports, and that's how it's supposed to be. Because it's not exactly safe to just hand a kid over to biological strangers and say, here, you have complete authority over their life. Social workers aren't tools. They know that that involves risk for kids. That's why adoptive parents like me have to undergo that kind of screening and vetting. Mm -hmm. There is no such 
screening and vetting for adults who are procuring children through reproductive technologies, even though those kids often go home with one or two unrelated adults. So these are two very different things, right? In the adoption world, the adults do hard things on behalf of children. In reproductive technologies, the children do hard things on behalf of adults. Mm, okay, so now, Katie, we have set the table, and when <laughs> we make this transition and talking about um, Bethany Christian Services, having redefined how we look at adoption and how we consider uh, who adoption is for, um, did Bethany Christian Services get it wrong? All right, so I don't know what <laughs> is going on over there. I mean, like, I tried to, like, I actually talked to a couple of reporters, read several articles. I don't know why they made the change that they made. Um, and so in, in the them before us world, right, mm-hmm. we recognize that when you are placing a child for adoption, the child is the client. If adoption functions the way that it should properly function, every child that needs parents is going to find loving parents, but not every adult who wants a kid is going to go home with a kid, okay? Mm, that's a great and point, so yeah. There's, there's the question, you know, people will say to me, Katie, do you think that gays have a right to adopt? And I'll say, no, of course not. But you know what? Heterosexuals don't have a right to adopt either. Nobody mm. has a right to a child that's not biologically theirs. So when we think about adoption, we need to think children who have lost their parents have a right to be adopted, okay? They're the ones with rights here, not adults. And so... We now need to say, what is the best family for that child in need? And social workers need to examine a lot of different criteria. Number one, place the child with biological relatives like aunts or uncles or grandparents or even cousins whenever possible Mm -hmm. so they can retain that kinship network, right? Mm -hmm. Number two, they need to prioritize homes with mothers and fathers because not only do children benefit from the distinct ways that moms and dads interact with kids, but they actually crave it. Like kids crave the love of a mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And if there's an option of placing a child with a mom and dad and you pass that over because some, you know, single mom or some same sex couple says, Hey, we have a right to adopt. You have now abandoned your original client, right? Mm. The child. So then you also have to examine sometimes there's situations where like, for example, in the foster care world where there's, sibling groups of children, yes. you know, well, there'd be three siblings, but it's tragic when they have to be separated. They're the only three people that they've known all their life. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times they've been in and out of different homes. So you have to evaluate which adults can take all three kids. And then sometimes you have to look at, okay, well, this child has this very specific special need, which yes. adult is equipped to handle this special need. So mm-hmm. there are lots and lots of factors that social workers have to examine when placing children And like I said before, if you're not talking about white drug-free infants, there's often not enough adults, not enough heterosexual married couples to meet the need. I know that there isn't in Seattle where a lot of times foster kids are sleeping on the floor Mm. of social workers' offices overnight. There's just not enough. Mm. So what we say at Them Before Us is social workers and adoption agencies should always prioritize married mother father home that is the ideal and we have to recognize it's the ideal now sometimes the ideal is not available and hey katie katie let me let me just stop you right there because we're going to hit this break i want to pick up right here i think this is a great place to break 
We'll, we'll be right back, and we're going to talk about when the ideal is not available and get your perspective on that. Aaron the Addisons on American Family Radio. Our guest, Katie Faust, author of the book, Them Before Us. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. love your show. I'm encouraged, excited, uh, learning so much. Here's my question. So the, the main answer, I guess, would be answer people from the word. Mm-hmm. But if conversationally I'm talking with a person who, good friend, 50s, claims to, you know, he's Christian, he says, raised in the foster care system, much abused, he might say and kind of has implied I'd have been, it would have been great to be loved by anybody, provided mm. for, not burned, not other issues. What does one say to that person who might say, look, these, I would have been happy to have an LGBTQ family who would have provided for me, loved me, encouraged me. So welcome mm. back to Aaron <laughs> the Addisons on American Family Radio. Um, that was Lisa yeah. in Texas yeah. who called at the very end of our show yeah. last week as that we talked happens. about... It always happens. You always get the zinger of a question when you've got 15 seconds, 10, 9, and then you can't answer. But I thought, you know, this is great because we're going to have an opportunity to invite Katie Faust on to help us answer this question. And today is that day. Mm -hmm. Katie Faust is the founder and director of the children's rights organization, Them Before Us, also the author of the book by the same name, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And we are discussing, among other things, Bethany Christian Services, but as we were going to the break, Mm -hmm. uh, Katie began to discuss when the ideal, now we've already kind of set this up, um, when the ideal is not available. And I think this goes directly to the question that Lisa had. I've already, it's a shame that I have to give this disclaimer again. Katie and I may disagree. Okay, that's a that's a disclaimer. (laughs) You used Uh, to be able to just just disagree, right? And it's okay. Um, you don't have but to give anyways, that dis- disclaimer. disclaimer. We're gonna don't give it anymore, nah. right? Because mm-hmm. that kind of makes me a snowflake as well. <laughs> um, but let's let's have this conversation here. So, welcome back, Katie. Are you still with us? Yes, totally. Uh, and I'm really excited because I listened to that podcast and I heard her question. I was like, Lisa, you come on home to me, honey. Come on home. We're gonna, we're gonna fix you right up. <laughs> All right. Well, then, without further ado, then go ahead, Katie. Have at it. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is a lot of people throw out this objection of like, oh, I see, you'd rather have kids languishing in an overseas orphanage and dying than placing them with a same-sex couple. And a lot of times they'll throw that objection out in a justification, in the justification for completely redefining our marriage and parented laws. Mm -hmm. Okay, so first of all, no, right? We have an ideal. We have like marriage is connected to parenthood. Marriage exists to unite a mother, a child's mother and father, so that that's our best tool. Society's never found anything better that ensures that a child will be raised by both their mother and father. That's yes. the public purpose of marriage. And so we can acknowledge that there are some exceptions, especially in the case of these rare, rare adoptions, um, where sometimes the ideal is not available and a same-sex couple may be the best placement for a child in need. 
But even in those rare exceptions, that doesn't justify completely overhauling, overthrowing, and disregarding the fact that mothers and fathers matter to kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I'll follow up with the specific, and that is, a lot of people kind of ask this question in the hypothetical, but I've kind of lived through it personally. And mm -hmm. that is that back before I was a mom, I worked at a large, the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. And I had some friends of mine who were lesbians who were placed with a child um, at a different agency who was in an overseas institution and had a very significant medical need. I know for a fact that that child's profile was overlooked, was passed over by several heterosexual couples. And there was a really good chance that she may not survive in that orphanage. And even if she did, it wasn't going to be much of a life. And so the agency matched the daughter, the girl, with my two friends. And they said, hey, we know that you have, first of all, you don't have kids yet, you know, and we know that you have a background in adoption. We're going to need help on this trip when you come. And I said, absolutely. And so we went for two very difficult weeks as they adjusted to this child's significant special needs. It was a very emotionally, um, very, very difficult first couple weeks for everybody. Um, and that child ended up needing about a surgery every year and then also a lot of accompanying therapy afterwards. There's a very good chance she would not have lived to be 18. And as far as I could tell, no heterosexual couple was willing to take on her hard case. So I look at a situation like that and I go, okay, given a lot of different subjective evaluation it needed to take place, the agency made the right placement. Now, I don't necessarily think that those two women are telling their daughter, hey, you know, you, you don't need the love of a father. I think that they probably themselves think, look, we're better than nothing, you know? Um, we can certainly give the kids some love, stability, and some medical care. Now, again, you can acknowledge that those rare cases exist and that it is better for a child to be with two stable women than in an institution or often recycled through different foster care homes and still maintain that there is an ideal that adoptive parents or foster parents are not always able to meet. Mm. So I think, and, and I'm glad that our audience got to hear that example because I read that example yeah, in your recent article. article mm -hmm. And that was one of those things where I was like, okay, so respectfully, I probably have more of a Walshian type, or it, maybe not a complete Walshian <laughs> <laughs> type mm -hmm. um, approach to this because I, so, so here is what I think, right? Um, I do not think that we should place kids in a situation where it would mar their view of the image of God, right? That, that God has made man and woman in his image and the uniqueness of that and how they experience that best first and foremost in, in their family structure. But I almost think, and, and again, this was not the scenario that was presented in this case. So I can't just like tack on to your example and paint the picture that I wish were there, right? You have to, this is what was actually your experience. But I know that in the context of this conversation, there also is the question of placing kids in a single parent environment, right? So say there's a single woman. I almost think that when sexuality is in place, there's going to be, there is, look, we all are experiencing brokenness, right? There's going to be brokenness. But I think my concern, and I want to have you talk back to this, Katie. My concern is that when you put a child in an environment where you change their concept of human sexuality, then you are, I would say, exaggerating the brokenness that is already there. Your thoughts? 
So I think that the, I would not, I don't know if I would frame it that way. So here's what I would say is one mother, two mothers, 10 mothers will never be a father. Two women parenting a child, one woman parenting a child, those kids have something in common. And the primary thing they have in common is probably father hunger. That children who are not raised with a dad crave the love of a man because they are made for it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know single parents, incredible, faithful single parents who have adopted. They would be the first one to admit, oh, my gosh, my kid wants a dad so bad, so bad. And that's what we've heard from the stories of kids who have been adopted or raised by same-sex parents. Many of them would say, look, I, I love my two moms. I'm grateful for them, but I was like obsessively focused on trying to get men to look at me, connect with me, like pay attention to me. I wanted a father so bad. And so from the stories that I've read, it's less about distorted sexuality and most about the completely missing, the absence of the male or female parents. The children are not just like that they don't just benefit from, but that they desperately crave. Now, here is where I might agree with you. I think that in the same-sex parent at home, from what I can tell based on the stories that we've cataloged at our um, organization, the kids that are raised by same-sex parents very often are hearing the message, you should like this, you should be happy, um, all you need is love. Um, and that actually sends a pretty distressing message to kids because it mm-hmm. tells them, look, I desperately crave the love of a father, but everybody in my life is telling me I'm so lucky to be raised by two moms. There must be something wrong with me for feeling this way. Whereas I don't see a lot of single moms necessarily saying that to their kids. A lot of single moms are single moms because they were the only adult who was only parent who was willing to act like an adult. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that they're communicating to their kid, you should be happy that you're fatherless. My guess right. is they're going, yeah, I'm so sorry. This is a really crappy situation and you deserve a dad. So I think that that's probably the dynamic I've observed more often as we have collected and gathered the stories of children who have been raised without their mother or father or both. Yes. And I think that's that's the point that I would drive home consistently and continually. I, I think that to represent Mm -hmm. a family to a child because I think, you know, and I don't, of course I don't have your background, Katie, and I don't know what information you come across. I just don't imagine that um, people who are in a same sex relationship that they are communicating that, Hey, and by the way, this is not the standard for family. Do you understand what I'm saying? And and I think that there is a certain amount of um, injury that mm-hmm. that that I think children sustain as a result of that. And it is on the basis of that um, understanding and strong conviction, of course, the biblical conviction of what God says family is, which I think we've already set up beautifully, that that is the ideal. This is what God has set in front of us. I don't think that should be trampled, but it's on, on the basis of what I just said that I would say, you know, I think even a single parent that mm-hmm. has God's view of family in front of them, that yes, this is not the ideal, um, you know, but I am trying to help you. I am. I, I do believe that you are you need help versus what I think would be the predominant view mm-hmm. among same sex couples that there is no ideal. This is your mm-hmm. family. This is what we make mm-hmm. it. And, and and this is basically what we're serving to you. 
Yeah, we we definitely we have an entire chapter in our book on same sex mm-hmm. parents and the loss and the uh, how detrimental it is to be raised in same sex parents at homes. Like we go through the research on it, um, and then we share you know twenty five thirty stories of kids with two moms or two dads, kind of talking about how that impacted them in real life. And so, mm-hmm. like we don't pull any punches about that. But let me broaden the circle a little bit further. Um, And say, because what you just said is exactly right. It's what kind of messages are kids hearing about their particular state of brokenness? Because that actually matters, right? What are they hearing? What is is being shared with them about why they're in the situation they're in? And so at Them Before Us, we say, look, so we're all about protecting children's rights to their mother and father. We acknowledge that all throughout history, kids have lost their fathers, oftentimes due to like war on a mass scale, right? You'll have a generation of orphans after wartime. It used to be that mothers were routinely lost during childbirth, right? Mm. So we have experience with father loss and mother loss historically, but typically in the past, it has all been due to tragedy. Mm-hmm. Not so today. Today, kids are losing their mother or father, not because of tragedy, but because intentionality, because adults are choosing it, because adults want it that way. They want to be a single mother by choice, right? Mm -hmm. They want to have a household that reflects their romantic priorities rather than the child's need for a mom and dad. You know, they want to believe that they can end their marriage easily and they can both go off with whatever side chick they've got or whatever, and the kids will be happy if the adults are happy. So we talk about these losses as desire-based losses. They didn't lose their parents to tragedy. They lost this parent because adult desire was prioritized above the child's right. And now, even though you've got like heterosexuals in one spot, married people in another spot, um, gay, you know, gay, straight, you've got like various different ways that all of those groups force kids to sacrifice for their own desires. And what happens is very interesting because in all of those desire-based losses, usually what's being communicated to the kid is, if I'm happy, you should be happy. And Mm. then not only that, but you need to support me. You need to support my decisions, right? You, child created through sperm donation, should support me and your dad, you know, the social father who's raised you, Um, right? Because like, even though we've intentionally cut you off from your biological father, somebody that you fantasize about and long for every night when you go to bed, but you can't tell us about, right? Mm, Which many, many kids created through sperm and egg donation feel this way, feel desperately, they desperately long to know their biological parent, Mm -hmm. right? What, what happens when adult desire is prioritized above children's rights is adults have the, the adults act as like kids and the kids have to act like adults. The kids have wow. to be supportive, understanding, accommodating, mm. right? Whereas the adults are the ones that are saying, no, you support me. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's often a factor with same-sex parenting, but that's not the only place where it's a factor. It's a factor in any household where the adults are forcing the kids to sacrifice for them. Oh, that is such an excellent point. And I, man, I'm telling you, we, we've got to change our perspective back like we've we have lost our understanding of the great need that children have and we've got to change that perspective back. Katie Faust, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate this conversation. I want to remind our listeners that the book is Them Before Us, 
why we need a global children's rights movement, um, let me just suggest that you check your local bookstore first, maybe order it, and then if you can't, if you can't, uh, you can, you know, Amazon it. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's just my commentary. Um, them before us, why we need a global children's rights movement. I think we'll have to talk to Katie again on this topic and maybe some other things because we have to get back to what God's original intent was. When we think about all issues, we must filter it through a biblical lens. And unfortunately, as Christians, we're not doing that enough. All right, we're out of time. Until tomorrow, Lord willing. God bless.